Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Reframers Podcast. I am Zach. I'm Erin. Good afternoon or morning or evening, whatever time you're listening. I am Cassie. We're happy you're here. Zach, tell everybody what you did today. I was selected to sit on the jury today. Wait, you were actually selected? You didn't even just have to go? You were selected? I was selected. My lifelong dream has finally come true. Starting next Monday, I will be a juror in a case. And I'm very excited and honestly humbled by the opportunity. I have wanted to be on a jury every day since I turned 18 and could serve on a jury and I've never been able to be on one. Wow. Aaron, me too. No, I, I, <laughs> I feel like people might think that we're being facetious, but since I was eligible to sit on a jury, I was like, I would love the opportunity to do this. It's such a privilege. And I'm, I, was, I was called once uh, and they didn't need me. So this time... Uh, I'm sitting. I, I report on Monday. Do you know what kind of case it is? I do know what kind of cases it is criminal. I was very excited and impressed with the whole process. Like at first, I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but they called me in and we filled out a questionnaire, not a very invasive, but just kind of a, a high level questionnaire. And then the judge went through and asked everybody about the questionnaire to see if there was any you know, potential conflict once he told us what the case was. And I really appreciated how much he made it known that you could have feelings about whatever the issue is, but can you be impartial and apply the, the facts and the law as I present it to you in this case without too much bias? That should be fun. I'm glad that you're going to have the opportunity. I have watched Wardier before, which is what the jury selection process is called. It's the legal term for it. It's a Latin term, but it's, I thought it was super duper boring. So I'm glad it was interesting for you because just sitting there watching the judge like question person after person for like five hours, it's like, really, it takes forever and it gets really, really boring. It was kind of boring, but I just thought it was nice that, you know, the judge was able to ask his questions and then the defense asked their questions and the prosecution, it was an effective way for them to weed out any, you know, potential conflicts. And yeah, I, I just appreciated, you know, once we were in there and he was starting to ask questions about, you know, okay, I get you have personal feelings about this, not to me, but to other people, I get you have personal feelings about this, but can you set those feelings aside and, you know, weigh the facts of the case impartially? And I, I kind of looked over because the defendant was in the room. Um, the whole time. And it just struck me. I was like, this is the most important day of this, this person's life. Probably here we are 31 people, you know, eventually it'll get down to 12 of us that are going to, you know, have a hand in, is this person going to go to jail? Excited to see what happens next week. And hopefully I can serve well. I'm sure that you will. You know, that actually leads us interestingly into our topic for today, because today we're going to be talking about the death penalty and the way 
our court system works, the way the jury process works, um, has, is a really big part of that conversation actually. So yeah, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. It was very coincidental. Um, we didn't know I was going to be on a jury for this week. I don't think Aaron knew I was going to be even going to jury duty until 10 minutes ago. Um, so in a lot of my prep for this week's episode, I was listening to podcasts and it dealt directly with, you know, the juries and how they play a role in death penalty and, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I hope this week's topic is interesting and engaging to people. And I hope I can bring something to it. Having been selected to sit on a jury, not that that gives me any kind of qualifications. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In fact, you're not being qualified. It's like one of the reasons you'd be on a jury. <laughs> Because it's supposed to be like lay citizens, True, right? right? Who, right. yeah. <laughs> so therefore, I am the most qualified person. <laughs> the most qualified. I literally was selected as impartial of, <laughs> of the people. So where where do we want to start? Do we want to talk a little bit about what the founders thought about death penalty? Absolutely, yeah. Um, let's let's start there, and then we'll go into our our discussion. You know, the the history of the death penalty goes back, you know, way, 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 way before. United States, but it basically was a tradition that was brought over when the um, colonists first came from England. Uh, it says the first recorded execution in the new colonies was that of Captain George Kendall in the Jamestown colony of Virginia in 1608. So almost a full 200 years, not quite, but almost a full 200 years before the United States was founded. And he was executed for being a spy for Spain. It goes on to say that laws regarding the death penalty varied from colony to colony. Massachusetts held its first execution in 1630. So the death penalty is not something that's new. Like it's, it's as old or older than the country is itself. And although that being said, it has had a very up and down history in the country. Yeah. And I found it interesting when I was looking into this, even though we have had it in the country for a long time. It's been controversial since the very beginning, you know, which crimes it should apply to and when is it cruel and unusual, which if anyone doesn't know, the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution is a prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. And when people talk about getting rid of the death penalty, one of the ways they talk about that is saying that it is cruel and unusual punishment. So it's actually unconstitutional. I don't think the founders probably thought that otherwise they wouldn't have allowed, you know, if they thought that, I think they, they wouldn't have allowed death penalty at all. It, it might've been something more um, clear in the different state constitutions or colonial constitutions at the time or in our constitution. But I found that at least George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, who are the first four U.S. presidents admired a book that was called On Crimes and Punishments. And it's written by this Italian criminal law theorist whose name I can't pronounce, but his last name I think is Be Beccaria. And it was an enlightenment text to call for the death penalty's ab abolition. And there were, uh, Jefferson at least thought that the death penalty should only be used in very, very limited circumstances. It was like treason and maybe murder. Um, Washington, this is a quote, we should not introduce capital executions too frequently, viewing it as something that would really only be used in, in extreme circumstances. And abolitionists later on also greatly um, disagree with the death penalty because oftentimes it was used as a weapon against people of minority populations, particularly African-Americans who 
were and still are incarcerated at higher rates than white people and are given the death penalty at higher rates than white people. I found that pretty much the same thing that jives with all the stuff that I found. I found something where I think you mentioned, but Adams was was against it. And that same Italian philosopher came up and I don't, I don't think his name doesn't come up. I don't think you can avoid it when you're looking at the death penalty. I think he's pretty much everywhere. James Madison said, I should not regret a fair and full trial of the entire abolition of capital punishments by any state willing to make it. So it, it sounds like from the things that I've seen, it was kind of unanimous that that the founders were opposed to it, except for in extreme circumstances. And I think that that, I don't have anything to support this, but I think it goes along with their fear of a tyrannical government that they felt like maybe having capital punishment be commonplace or used too frequently would be maybe an imbalance of power of the state rather than, you know, democratic, you know, imprisonment by we the people. Maybe. I mean, I guess I could see that a little bit. There is capital punishment in Britain. So, but they also brought it with them. It's not like they totally got rid of it, even if they weren't completely embracing of all aspects of it. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they didn't, they didn't say we don't want death penalty at all. I do think that they're, the measured approach to it, meaning that they didn't really want to apply it in a ton of different situations, it probably had a little bit to do with the government, you know, and, and what they thought the government should do. I think it probably had a lot to do with all of their experience with other governments. I mean, it was very common to have death penalty in other governments. Many governments today have it, many don't, but I think it was a little bit more culturally part of government systems. And then I also also think that religion probably had something to do with that as well, because there are, and this is something that is true today too, there's certain verses in the Bible, so in like a Christian context that talk about the death penalty. You can interpret them in different ways, but that is the backing for a lot of people on why they think that the death penalty um, should be incorporated in government because it was in these older, it, it's in the biblical text and the founders were largely religious, like Christian religious as well. And so I wonder if that also had an impact on how they viewed this. Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, it's funny that that got brought up so early because in my research for this week, I really only found defenses of the death penalty with a religious background. I I could not really find, granted, I, I was mostly looking at podcasts, you know, in an audio format, but I didn't really find any uh, secular or strictly political defenses of the death penalty. They were, the only ones that I were able to find were something relating to either Christianity, but the one specifically I found was about relating to Judaism. I thought that was interesting that here now, most of the reasons for abolishing the death penalty were you know purely sec- secular, and the, really the only defenses were coming from, from the religious argument. So I thought that was just an interesting note. Wait, that's so interesting. The only, wait, yeah, what, Aaron? I just, I have one argument that I have heard that is not religious in nature about the death penalty. And the argument is, well, the death penalty is a crime deterrent. And so the harsher the penalty, the more it deters crime. So, you know, our murder rate should go down if we have the death penalty. There's been studies about this that are actually like pretty inconclusive. There's been some that have found that makes no difference. And there's some that just, they don't really know. Um, I don't think there's super strong evidence on both sides, unless it's, you know, evidence that I just haven't seen. Maybe it does exist. Um, 
but that is an argument that is non-religious in nature about death penalty and kind yeah, of a theory of punishment in general. That's what I was going to say is like just a, a purely emotional response to something horrible happening to somebody that you're close to would very likely be, I don't want this person to live anymore and to exist. And I mean, that's not based in religion. That's based in emotion. Well, I mean, we're kind of jumped right into the whole meat of the episode already, which I think is good, but I saw the same thing, Aaron, that, yeah, it is framed as a deterrent, but I saw similar statistics where that was saying that states that have the death penalty for certain crimes don't show a statistical significant difference than states that don't in terms of their murder rates or rape rates or anything like that. So the fact that, and, and the, the person I was listening to said that in her years as being, you know, a defense attorney, she had never come across somebody that said, you know, I would have killed him, but I live in a state that has the death penalty. And so I decided, no, I'll just beat him super bad. Like it, 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 for something to be a deterrent, it has to be something that's rationally considered in should I, or should I not go through with this action? And that again, to me, it it seems unlikely that you're sitting there doing a risk assessment of, okay, I want to commit a crime, but how bad of a crime do I want to commit? And then going and referring to the state's, you know, penal code to see, well, if I do that one, I'll get killed by. So that was one thing I thought was interesting. But then the other, Cass, is your point about, you know, the emotional response to this person killed someone I love or, you know, whatever the crime is, I don't want them to exist anymore. I think that that's an appropriate response. I think that, you know, we care for our loved ones deeply. However, I think it's a different animal when you have a man killing another man because, you know, the other raped his wife. That's a totally understandable response. I think what is different is when you have the state committing, you know, a killing against the person, against its own citizens, rather than just a simple man-on-man murder. I think the context and the morality of that changes when you change the situation. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to kind of step back from the death penalty specifically and just think about, well, what, why do we punish people? Like, what is the theory behind it? And I think that there's some clear things, like if you're being a danger to society, you need to be removed from society so that you're not continuously a danger to society. But I mean, as someone who commits a crime, like beating someone up out of a fit of passion, that's very personal to like this situation, and they go to jail for five years or something like that. That's not really just about removing them from society. It's definitely also about some sort of punishment, right? Like some sort of retribution. And that's something we've decided as a society that's a theory of punishment that we actually embrace. You know, we have long sentence terms for different kinds of crimes. I think it's worth having, just thinking about, well, like, what, what are we like really trying to do? Is it retribution? Is it rehabilitation? Is it removal from society? Are we really worried about the breaking of the social contract? You know, there's actually different theories of like why we punish. And I think, I just think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, agreed. And and the death penalty definitely is the retribution side of it, right? You've done something that society has deemed so bad. And before I continue along with that, I wanted to just let the audience know that the death penalty isn't something that is automatically like, oh, you committed a murder, you either will or will not get the death penalty. There's certain crimes and certain backers that have to be present 
in committing those crimes in order for you even to be eligible for the death penalty. So I think that there was like 13 different factors that have to be considered. Aaron can probably fill in the particulars here. Well, it'll depend by state. Oh, okay. So that's a little bit. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, There's, there are parameters that are set federally, but it's, it states make their own laws about there. So it's 27 states who allow the death penalty. So people okay. know. So then if you committed a crime that's eligible for the death penalty, then a certain, some of those elements have to be present in order for you to be considered to get it. And then the other thing that's related to that is... Um, Oh, and then the prosecution has to actually pursue the death penalty. So if the person is found guilty of those crimes, then the prosecution then have to decide whether or not they want to pursue death versus a life sentence versus like 25 to life. Then what are the factors that would or would not lead an attorney, prosecution attorney to pursue death penalty? I'm sure there are specific things that they have to follow. I am not a criminal law attorney. I never go to court. So this is not something that I learned. I mean, I probably learned about it in law school. It's a long time since then. But there's things called aggravating and mitigating factors. I do know that's a thing when you're talking about sentencing. And sentencing is sometimes set, or I think maybe always set by states in a statute. And it's usually a range. So you can pick, like, depending on the crime, you can, as a prosecutor, go for the harshest penalty or the, you know, least harsh penalty, depending on the different factors that are at play, but you're like within this specific range for different crimes. An aggravating factor for, I mean, it's not really aggravating factor though, necessarily, because you're talking about like a first degree murder versus second degree murder. And I think in most states, it's only first degree murder, maybe also second degree that can do death penalty, but not manslaughter. So these are different kinds of crimes. First degree murder has to be premeditated. So you intentionally like plan to kill someone it's and there are other things that you can that can show intention it doesn't have to be like oh i wrote out a plan of this you know like if there's clear things that show that you you were planning this like killing Um, somebody in a car accident isn't the same as going to somebody's house with a weapon when they're asleep breaking in the door and killing them like those are treated Right. Or even if they're not asleep, if you just brought a weapon, you knew they were there and you wanted to fight them, you weren't really planning on killing them, but you brought a weapon with you and you were really, really angry and knew that it could escalate. Like that's the Mm -hmm. kind of thing that could actually indicate an attention. Um, It doesn't have to be something that is so strong, like, oh, I plan to kill this person when I walk over to their house, but like Mm -hmm. taking steps that show that you thought that maybe might be on the table could do it too. But that's like first degree murder. And something like that also could be second degree murder, depending on the facts and circumstance. Everything is dependent on the facts. Like it's really the like extra terrible things that we've probably Mm -hmm. all heard about, you know, like that people would do that would be an aggravating factor. It depends on the time culturally as well. I mean, prosecutors in the South during the 70s and before were pushing for death penalty on cases that. I would hope we would never push for today. And like one I know about this person was like, just had mental issues. And I think they, they did attack someone. They did not intend to kill them. It was sort of like a really tough situation. And they were, they were given death penalty. Rape used to be a death penalty crime in a lot of places. And that has been used against like African-American men specifically. So there's all these sort of other situations where, the factors kind of exist, but there's also all of these cultural things that exist as well. That's kind of getting a little bit beside your point. That was a little rambly, but 
Yeah. Well, no, I think it's helpful context. I have a timeline of the death penalty and it says uh, 1986 execution of insane persons banned. That's pretty recent. I mean, that's, you know, very recent in way within living memory. That's only not even 10 years before I was born. So that's pretty late in the game to be banning executions of somebody who is unable to like rationally behave themselves. When I think execution of minors has gone back and forth a couple times, maybe. I don't know if that's on your list. I, I mean, there's a lot of things. This list is very long. And, yeah. and especially recently, like it, it starts out in 18th century BC, which is way back there. And then there's like five things. And then it jumps to 1823. So for a long time, there was like no change. But then starting in the 1800s, it picks up and there's something every year, every other year. I just saw one where executing people with mental, you know, they say mental retardation, but, you know, mental issues is not a violation of Eighth Amendment. That was only in 1989. There's kind of a bunch here. Yeah, I found the um, juveniles one. So the Supreme Court does prohibit execution for crimes committed when people are 15 or younger. So not just minors. Um, Oh, so if you're 16, 17 or 18 and you do something bad You can be sentenced to death. Mm Mm-hmm. There's 19 states that have laws that permit crimes committed at 16 or 17. And since 1973, 226 juvenile death sentences have been imposed. That's bonkers. Yeah. Dang. We're kind of talking about it fully, but Aaron, what do you think about death penalty in terms of, is it something we should allow? You know, what's your stance on it? Yeah, I very much don't think that we should allow it as a concept for a society. I mean, some people I think don't like it because it's sort of this human rights situation of we can't kill other human beings, that sort of theory. I get that. That's not what bothers me as much, though, is that we like actually cannot do it in a just way. Like, I just don't trust our system of government to be able to to be able to handle this. And the consequences of getting it wrong are so devastating. And we have gotten it wrong for so long. You know, there's other alternatives like life without parole. There's other things that we can do, but I'm, I'm like very firmly against death penalty. What about you? Personally, I kind of like it. I'm like, if you, you know, are a child rapist, or if you are a mass murderer or something like the humanity side of me is like, I like the idea of retribution against people who commit heinous crimes. That being said, the public policy side of me is very much against the death penalty. I think that, like you mentioned, there's too many mistakes that have been made in terms of killing people that were innocent and that they were, evidence came out later that they should have been exonerated that weren't. I think that that's awful. And I think that it's, even if it were, perfect all the time. And we made no, mis- um, you know, no, there was nothing intentional that was bad with the system. And I think that there are some things that are intentional that exacerbate the problem. But even then, how many people, how many innocent people are we okay with accidentally killing? Yeah, and, I think and I that's think the that's, question. Mm-hmm. I think you can't get around that. Yeah. And I actually have a statistic here. Between 1973 and 2016, 156 people who have been sentenced to death were determined to be innocent. That's a lot of people, right? What about that and book that everybody talks about, Just Mercy? And didn't they make a movie? So good. The book is really, really good. I, I have not seen the movie. The, one of the things that's good about the book, though, uh, this is like me being a book person, but don't just defer to the movie here. The book has 
tons of these statistics and it just goes through there's chapters devoted to different populations like there's a chapter about juveniles and there's a chapter about like women there's chapters about different people in the system who've experienced these like death penalty situations and also just you know bad experiences um not just bad experiences like ingest experiences with uh, the criminal law system in the United States. And it really is a great resource. If you're interested in any of this, super highly recommend that book. I'm going to read it. I'm adding it to my Goodreads right now. Yeah, it's really good. Even though we sound like we kind of agree on this, I want to also just kind of talk about like what we've been, like where we're at in the U.S. right now, as far as death penalty and attitudes toward it and maybe like what we can change if I mean we think that this is not a good policy for us to be having in the U.S. and it is by state but I just wanted to mention that the Pew Research Center this is from two years ago so it's probably more updated now has um they they do the public opinion polls they did one about the death penalty and 59 percent of white people favored the death penalty while only 36 percent of African Americans favored it and I think that's a pretty clear statistic of like who this really affects. Um, And then also evangelicals are 73% in favor, but 77% of millennial Christians oppose it, which is really interesting. I'm not sure how they differentiate between evangelicals and millennial Christians. I'm not, I don't really know about that, but I do think it's true. And this is like backed by other studies that people are moving away from the death penalty, it is way less popular than it was even like 20 years ago or 10 years ago. I think that our generation in particular doesn't like the death penalty. And I mean, I hope, but there's also things that like push back on that. So for example, um, you might find it surprising, but California is one of these states that still has the death penalty. In 2012, it was on our ballot from a referendum to get rid of the death penalty. And it, it narrowly passed. I don't even know if it was narrow, but it, it, we voted not to get rid of the death penalty, which is kind of wild if you think about how like progressive California is that we're one of these states that still allows the death penalty. I don't think we've said this before in today's episode, but I think that the current state of it is that in, since 1976, the court upheld revised state capital punishment laws, meaning capital punishment, meaning death penalty. So it's been the law of the land since 1976 that, that if states choose to, they can have the death penalty enacted. So I mean, it's coming up on 50 years almost. Well, and I think this is really interesting. 85% of the executions in the past 40 years have been in the Bible Belt. And it's just, there is a culture specifically in that area of the country that is more open to these, this death penalty as a punishment, you know, it's it's 2021 and South Carolina this year reinstituted the firing squad as a method for the death penalty, which like, to me, that's absurd. That's not, that is so archaic. I mean, on some level, it's like, does it, is it even more honest? Like we're killing people and that's, you're being very upfront about how you're doing it, but it just, it's so it's so inhumane. I have such a problem with it. And I kind of can't believe that this is where we're at. Can someone explain this to me? I, I don't understand the connection between evangelicals and support of the death penalty. I, I think you mentioned it. And I just don't understand it. One, I think it 
there is theology. There is a theology that supports the death penalty if you interpret the Bible in a certain way. So there, there are verses about death penalty related stuff. It's in the law in Leviticus. It's in uh, later parts. There's like a verse in Romans that people reference a lot talking about like a sword. I think you can interpret that in a way that is not prescriptive, but I think there, there's theology related to it. I think a lot of people were taught this growing up. Um, I don't, we haven't mentioned this on this podcast yet, but I'm a Christian. I grew up Christian. I still am, but these are some of the ideas that I grew up with the death penalty being one of them very much was taught that that is just like a biblical thing. Like this is something that like God instituted. And so it's part of our society. This is a God thing. That's how I was taught it. I have done my own reading and research of statistics and the Bible, you know, like I want to get my theology correct. Um, just cause I disagree with something doesn't necessarily mean that it's like wrong like in the Bible, but I don't actually think that there is a good case in the Bible for the death penalty needing to exist today on this like theological level. A lot of people don't agree with that. And we're talking about a area of the country that is heavily conservative, heavily evangelical. I don't think that these, that maybe that idea in particular is super challenged. And it's something that people just grow up thinking is like normal and not just normal that it's right, that it's the right way to do things. Thank you for your perspective on that, because I am the atheist conservative of the group. So I can't bring that perspective, but um, I feel like it, it kind of maybe stems from the, you know, like 10 commandments, like don't commit murder kind of thing. And then therefore, like, if you do, this is the punishment. And in, in that case, I can almost see that the death penalty would be a deterrent. If you live in biblical times and you're in a town of a hundred people and you commit a murder, everybody knows you in that town. And so I just feel like on a societal level, you're the death penalty there, I feel like is a deterrent because you know everybody that you're associating with. And nowadays, we don't live in that situation anymore. We live in a time where there's, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people in cities. And we don't know each other. And so the fact that the law says you should not, you know, commit murder, otherwise you may get the death penalty is so far down the priority list in terms of versus, oh, well, they slept with my wife or, you know, whatever. I feel like there the deterrent argument goes away. But in biblical times, I feel like maybe it was applicable. But given all the statistics and the reality of the situation today, I don't see that that making a lot of sense. And again, that's just yeah. my, my hunch. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Maybe, um, probably, but I, and I think there's also, it goes beyond just the theology, you know, like some of these ideas are just part of the culture as well. And I think that's a big part of it too. If you grow up thinking like, Oh, really bad people shouldn't be part of our society. And like, there are some things that are just, you can't really come back from, you can't be a good member of society. And it's just, we can't say that it's okay for you to do those things sort of by default, if we just let you live in prison. And I think there's like sort of a little bit of that too, of we need this to be able to keep our society in check a little bit as mm -hmm. well. Kind of that same idea of if you murder someone, it's got to be really, really serious, whatever your consequences. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of it too.
you mentioned something that's kind of tangentially related because one of the things that gets brought up in the death penalty discussion is like the cost. I saw the average cost to keep somebody incarcerated for one year is around $50,000, which is steep. And I think maybe one day it would be good for us to talk about our prison system and you know private prisons versus government prisons and things like that. I think that would be interesting discussion, but okay, let's take the number at face value, 50,000. Apparently the cost of keeping a death row inmate incarcerated, is like $175,000 a year. That can go two ways, right? You either kill the person faster or you do life without parole and they're just in there forever. And year by year, your costs are significantly less because a lot of the death row inmates are not there for three years, four years. They're there for 25, 35 years. Like that's, that's getting into, you know, millions of dollars to keep these people incarcerated on death row. If you eliminate that option and just say your life without parole, you bring the cost down, I think significantly. So even, even on a fiscal standpoint, I feel like let's just get rid of the death penalty and keep people, you know, on a, a, you don't ever get a chance to come out kind of way, unless it's appealed, but at least we didn't kill you and make a mistake. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of goes into also like just incarceration rates in general. And I think you're right. We should talk about that this at some point, but it is re- relevant to this discussion because you know, you're right. When people are on death row, it is generally for a really long time. You're allowed a lot of appeals and um, that can take a while. And it is a, it's a problem in that sense too. Um, but yeah, going life without parole, even if it makes more sense fiscally, it would be good. Um, and just in general, I mean, this is a statistic about prisons, so a little bit unrelated, but I think it's really compelling. This is from the uh, Bureau of Justice Statistics. In 1980, we had 500,000 people incarcerated in the United States. In 2016, we had 2.2 million people incarcerated in the United States. We have larger incarceration rates than any other country. We talked about this a little bit with our drug episode. I mean, our drug policy is a huge part of this. Another thing that we could do to address this problem of people in the prison system is to put less people in the prison system. You know, like we used to not incarcerate this many people. There isn't a reason we have to incarcerate this many people now. You know, there's other methods that we can take. We can look more into rehabilitation or other kinds of fines or community service or just other things. We can uh, decriminalize some of these drug crimes, like all of that kind of stuff would make a difference in how our prison system works, you know? And then maybe there would be more appetite for getting rid of the death penalty because our system is really only for those people that are there for the life without parole. And that could be a way to redesign it and take some pressure off relying on that. I totally agree. This is something I remember talking to Cassie about. We were driving somewhere. I don't, gosh, I don't remember Cass where we were headed, but we were in the car, we were going somewhere and I was talking to you about the war on drugs. And I was talking to you about my kill the messenger movie with the San Jose Mercury news guy Uh, Gary Webb, who exposed the CIA drug trafficking, blah, blah, blah. If we as a nation were to address our war on drug or drug policy and decriminalize nonviolent drug offenses, right? So no no matter what drug it is, and, and I get that's hard to swallow. It's hard to swallow for me because I don't like the idea of people just using hard drugs like we talked about in our, our drug episode. I don't like it either, but from a public policy standpoint, decriminalize that if anybody is in jail for a nonviolent drug offense, their sentences is ended. And then you free up the system for actually dealing with crimes 
again, I take the libertarian stance on this. If you're putting something in your body, I don't care. But if you've killed somebody and somebody has to sit, you know, in jail, um, I have to plug this before we go too much longer, but um, I'm going to be an ultimate millennial dude right now and recommend a, a Joe Rogan podcast episode. Um, it's episode number 1521. No, I know. It sounds ridiculous. Oh, I get it. He's, you know, whatever. But I, Cassie I and I are laughing right here on, on our mute. <laughs> At least you understand that you're a millennial dude stereotype. Let's move I, on. I get it. I, you know, I, you, you can pick apart Joe Rogan however you want. I know many people have feelings about him, but honestly, I think this was maybe one of the most impactful three hours of audio I've ever heard in my life. It's episode number 1521. Air date was August 6, 2020. Um, and the the guests on the show were um, Josh Dubin and Jason Flom from innocenceproject.org. And honestly, it was incredible. And basically, if people don't know, the Innocence Project works to get people on death row, off of death row who are innocent. And for all the particulars, you know, you can listen to, to the pod or go to innocenceproject.org to see what they're talking about. But just for example, 3,555 years Innocent prod, Innocence Project clients collectively have spent being wrongfully incarcerated. 3,555. 232 Innocence Projects victories um, as of April 1st, 2021. And 192 of those were exonerated by DNA evidence. Um, and these guys have so much compelling statistics. I mean, like just right off the dome piece of you know, we incarcerate more African-Americans than South Africa did during apartheid, which is, okay, for context, apartheid is racial, like state instituted racial segregation and like awfulness. And we today's United States, granted our population is bigger and blah, 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 but still like that's nuts. So anyway, back to my original point, I feel like if you drop all these nonviolent drug offenses, that can help to snowball the process in actually allowing the judicial system to breathe and to focus on the things that are important rather than getting clogged up with all these minor infractions that actually don't harm society. We should, the, the legal system should be for things that are hurting society, not an individual, you know, maybe hurting himself by using drugs. Totally agree. Um, now it's my turn. I'm going to also give a couple resources that I think Let's are go. really helpful, particularly if you're someone um, like me, that's a person of faith and I have, you know, want to think about this a little bit more. Maybe you've been taught as I was that this is just something um, in the Bible, but these are really good resources, Christian or not. There's a podcast called Q Ideas, and there's two episodes about the death penalty that I think are really helpful. One is episode 71. It was on August 31st, 2017. Um, and this is a uh, talk by Brian Stevenson, who is the author of Just Mercy. If you want like a little it's not even that long. It's like 30 minute tidbit, basically, of what Just Mercy is about, you know, and, and his whole philosophy. That is a great place to go. And then there's another one. Um, it's episode 84. And it's also in 2017. It's in December with Sean Claiborne. And he also gives basically a pretty persuasive um, argument of why we shouldn't have the death penalty. And there was one of the things he mentioned um, in that podcast that I just wanted to say, because it's so compelling. The only other countries that execute more people than the United States are China, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Pakistan, who are not countries that are known for protecting human rights or for democracy. Like that's the company that we're keeping with having this policy. 
Ugh, that makes me viscerally sick. I don't want to be on a list with any of those nations. Sorry. Yeah. As I'm sitting here and just looking, because I was wondering if this is what Kim Kardashian West works on, and it's similar. She had that documentary, um, looks like it's called The Justice Project, and uh, this is something that she, in, in her life now, has gone back to school to become a lawyer and is focusing kind of on what we're talking about, how many people are in in the system that have paid their debts, in her view, and maybe shouldn't have been incarcerated in the first place. I was trying to see if it was specific to death penalty. It's not. It's It jumps around, but I might be watching it. I can't plug it, but I might be watching that. I would strongly encourage people to go and look at any of these resources that we've been mentioning here, just because it's the ultimate power of the state, right? I mean, this is when people talk about state power, especially, I feel like me and my perspective, I'm skeptical of the government because the government has a monopoly on force. You know, they are the ones that have the police and they have the power to do these things, you know, legally. And the other thing that I think we can't not mention here in the podcast is the need to be right, I guess, maybe is the way to say it, where on this this Joe Rogan pod, they talk about um, cops or, you know, DAs or even like lab technicians or something like that who either plant evidence or refuse to to run a DNA test on on DNA that they have or you know, refuse to hear a, an appeal trial because of whatever, you know, the case may be, but so much, so much of it comes from the game and from the ambition of you have a prosecuting attorney who has a great record. And I feel like a lot of times, um, you know, we see it all the time. If you're a prosecution attorney and you do really well for yourself, especially in a you know high profile state, that's kind of a pathway towards higher office. And so I think that people get caught up in well, my record, you know, needs to be preserved on this. And so even if it means that, you know, your case that you tried and got a conviction for was wrong, and I think that there's plenty of evidence that shows that it does happen, you have an interest in keeping that decision the same and not hearing, you know, uh, an appeal. Kind of like we talk about in our balance of power, separation of powers episode about term limits. I think if you institute term limits. Again, this is, you know, maybe a a kind of down the ladder benefit, but it might decrease some of these aspirations for people to just say, I have to have a perfect, you know, prosecution record because I want to be a Senator someday. If we make senators less glamorous because they can only be, you know, serving two terms, then it it might de-incentivize some of that competitiveness and, and need to be right at the expense of like actual justice. Yeah, that's so interesting. It makes me think about, you know, public defenders offices are notoriously underfunded as well. Um, And just being in law school, people talk to you about being a lawyer all the time. And I don't, like I said, I don't do criminal law. This is not like my thing, but I have been asked many times like, oh, would you ever want to be like, a public defender or a defense attorney or something? I'm like, well, no, because I don't want to go to court. And the response is always, oh, yeah, it just be so hard to defend like guilty people. And it sounds really cliche to say, like that's in movies and stuff, but it's a real thing that people, I think, actually think about this. And that perception is also a problem, right? Like it is defense attorneys, public defenders is so important. You know, you are preventing miscarriages of justice. You're also ensuring that everyone has equal rights under the law. Like this is how our system works fairly. And if we don't have it, the system is not fair. 
And so the way we think about people defending those who have been accused of crimes, like very important people in our society to uphold justice. To drive that point home even further, you have a presumption of innocence, especially if it's in a criminal case, right? You are innocent until the state proves you guilty. And so when you go into a you know, criminal trial and, and you're a defendant, this, it's the burden of the state to say, no, you absolutely did X, Y, and Z things that you're accused of. And, and it was for sure you beyond any, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I feel like the, the guys in the podcast say this kind of explicitly when they talk about, oh, I'm, you know, in, you know, people ask them what they do. They say, oh, I'm in the innocence project. You know, I'm working on X, Y, and Z case. The people always ask them, oh, what, what do you do? That's not a presumption of innocence. That's a presumption of guilt right off the bat. And so I feel like that's something that maybe needs to be driven home a little bit more in our civics education is that when somebody is on trial, it's they don't need to prove their innocence. It's up to the, the prosecution to prove that they are 100% guilty, not the other way around. I don't know, that, that concept feels so lost, but yet it's like the most important thing that we have in, in a free society, if that is indeed what we want to be. Absolutely, totally agree. If people don't listen to the, the thing is they talk about junk science, um, is what kind of what they call it. But basically, they have some things that they talked about that saying, you know, polygraphs aren't admissible in court, because they're, they're not reliable, they can't be they can be beaten. There's not a causal relationship to reasons why your blood pressure may be going up or down based off the questions, there could be other factors. The other things that they talk about are that like the study of bite marks, and the study of blood splatter, and even to an extent, um, they talk about arson are not reliable methods of forensics. And so if you're sitting on a jury and they bring in a blood splatter expert, they say, and I, I haven't looked at this myself, but they say that that's only like a 40 hour certificate course. And if you go and you complete the course, you can become a blood spatter expert or a bite mark expert. It's kind of fascinating that the people that develop these practices develop them either for auxiliary purposes, such as like identifying victims from accidents like plane crashes or car accidents or something like that, not, you know, based off of dental records, not based off of, you know, um, criminal cases, right? Like they bring up some things such as your skin thickness may be different from the dental, you know, implants that you took. And if your canine teeth, you know, you have kind of messy teeth or, you know, you didn't get braces or something, your canines, if they're sitting down, may lead your bite to not show you have any front teeth or vice versa. If you have kind of Hermione Granger teeth that are, your front teeth are very big and prominent, maybe your, your canines don't even show up when you bite down on something. So there's all these different things, um, you know, blood splatter. What was the temperature of the blood going through the body? was what was the motion of the arms, you know, that, that happened or the body that, that happened at the point of impact. So that's something that I didn't know until listening to this podcast, that those are not very reliable, you know, sources of scientific forensics. Um, the biggest one really is just DNA. So um, if, if you take something away from this as well, just know that those things are maybe not as reliable as, um, you know, TV has made them out to be. That's great. Thank you. Um, and if you want to get involved here, if you care about the death penalty or just, you know, our systems of justice and want to get more involved, Innocence Project really is a great resource. Um, you can donate to them. They have some things you can participate in. The Equal Justice Initiative is also great. 
that is Brian Stevenson's nonprofit that he started in Alabama. Um, and we, there's probably a few other resources that we can look up as well. Yeah. And, and one of the things too, is you can, um, you know, this is something that is at a local level, like it's not, you know, the president matters and stuff like we say all the time, but also your local DAs, your local, you know, sheriffs, your local counties have elected judges. And so these are things that when you go and vote um, in midterms, you know, which get less turnout than presidential elections, you know, make sure you are doing your research on who is running for these positions in your midterm elections, because if they are for death penalty, you know, find out why, or, you know, question them, or um, even send letters to your existing DAs and things like that, or, you know, your local rep for your state to see what their stance is on, on it. So I think just getting involved is how anything ever changes in this country. And so as Aaron said, if you care about this at all, you know, write a letter, write an email and make sure to vote appropriately for people that believe the way you believe. Well, thanks guys for a good, lively discussion and uh, for sharing your thoughts and such good resources. Everybody listening, thank you for being here. We hope that you found this interesting or um, enlightening. And if you hated it or loved it, let us know. Um, Primarily, if you loved it, please remember to rate and review. Five stars only. Um, Let us know what you want to talk about next. I personally want to talk about prison, but I could also go a totally different way since we talked about it a little bit here. Maybe we take uh, another hit at something we've talked about, maybe gun control again. I don't know. Let us know what you think. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everybody. Have a great rest of your week. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com. 